anytime you open this book, no matter where you open this book, Genesis all the way to Revelation, the poetry, the letters, the narrative accounts from cover to cover, you can be certain of this. God is in control and he's working to accomplish his redemptive purposes and plan. Every detail, every circumstance, every person, every promise. And that is the greater story of this book. God governs and he reigns supreme over all of creation in such a way that he will fulfill his intended purposes in plan in us and through us. We've been in the book of Luke. We've been in the uh, book of Genesis over the last two years. That's where we've been. We've seen it to be true. In the creation account, in the fall, in the flood, in the nation of Israel, the leadership of the nation of Israel, and the people of the nation of Israel, the people in the wilderness. We saw that last week. In the incarnation of Jesus Christ, in the life of Christ, in the ministry of Jesus Christ, in the followership of Jesus Christ. And guess what? When, when we open it today, even in the betrayal of one of the 12 closest to him, even in his arrest by a brute mob in the Garden of Gethsemane, even in the darkest hour of Jesus Christ's life, it's still true. Jesus is in control, and he's working to accomplish his Father's plan. I want you to take your Bible out and open to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22 will be in verses 47 to 53. We're picking up where Lloyd left off actually back in November. Took a break for Christmas and New Year's. Now we're back in and Jesus Christ is singularly focused on the cross. He is headed for the cross. And in the narrative account where we pick it up, I want you to know that it's Thursday night, the week of his death. Jesus has just left the upper room where he had the Passover feast with his disciples, the Last Supper. He walks downstairs. He walks out of the house. He walks down through the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives, into the Garden of Gethsemane, where he had spent every night that week in prayer. The hour has come. And Jesus has told his disciples that he would suffer. Now he is going to teach them how to die. He gets on his knees. He's praying there in the garden. He's praying passionately, fervently, that, that God would strengthen him and prepare him for the hour that is at hand, for the trial to come. He, he gets up from his prayer. He, he walks over to where the disciples are. They're asleep. Jesus wakes them up. He reminds them to pray, not, not just for him, but for themselves, that they too would be prepared for the hour that is to come, for the trial that is at hand. And while Jesus is speaking, they hear voices in the garden. A crowd has arrived, Luke tells us, and they're being led by Judas. So we're gonna pick it up, chapter 22, verse 47, and I'm gonna ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. Would you do that? Ready? While he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop! No more of this. And he touched the ear and healed him. 
Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour in the power of darkness are yours. Father, we pray that you'd add your blessing to the reading and the study of your word. Spirit, would you open our eyes to see it and the truth that lies in it. And Jesus, we pray that in this text, as we study it more deeply, we would look you square in the eyes. We'd see you face to face for what you did, for how you did it, and for how it applies to us today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can take your seats. Obviously, this is the account of Judas' betrayal and Jesus' arrest. But what I find most captivating about the count is not so much what's done to Jesus by Judas and the crowd, not what's done to Jesus, but what is said and done by Jesus. You see, there's the news story that would go something like this. One of Jesus Christ's disciples, a man named Judas Iscariot, worked with the local authorities to apprehend and arrest Jesus. Uh, Jesus was found in the Garden of Gethsemane and taken into custody. There's There's the news story version of the account. And then there's the greater story. It's like Paul Harvey used to say, then there's the rest of the story. And it's in Jesus's actions, specifically his words, that we see the rest of the story. That we see God's greater story. And this is a story that you do not want to miss. I'm going to look at it in three sections, three parts, three statements, three things that Jesus says in the text, in the passage. He asks one question, he makes two statements. He speaks first to Judas, then he speaks to Peter, and then lastly, he speaks to the crowd. It's interesting here that other than a comment by one of the disciples, Jesus is the only one who speaks during his arrest. So we're going to look at what he has to say. Now, before we dive in, I want to say just just one more thing about this passage. This is a dark night in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's heavy. It's weighty. It's sobering. We see it in Judas. We'll see it in Peter's reaction. We'll feel it with the crowd. I, I just want you to know that because where we are in the text, that darkness, that heaviness is just gonna hang over us all morning. It's not one of those passages where you're going to walk out of here in a few minutes all fired up about following Jesus Christ. Those are great mornings. This is not one of them. We're going to walk out of here probably a bit more sobered by the reality of what Jesus does here and by the places where the darkness is in our lives as well. Okay? So now that I made you want to leave as quickly as possible, we're going to dive right in. Here we go. I want you to know this, I've labeled these three sections in my notes. If it helps you to know where we're going, the kiss, the ear, and the hour. We'll look at what Jesus has to say. We'll make some points of application along the way. Here we go. The first question that Jesus asks, first thing that Jesus says is about the kiss. Verse 47, the crowd shows up. Judas is leading the way. Judas approaches Jesus to kiss him. And Jesus asks this question, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Now we know from the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and John, that Judas does actually kiss Jesus. It's a sign to the rest of the crowd as to which one to arrest. But here, in the gospel of Luke, and this is the only place that it's like this, the the question is asked, and you can just feel the question kind of hanging in the air. 
Jesus knows. He's not fooled. He's not surprised by Judas's action. He's, he's not really wondering why Judas came. Jesus knows the hearts of men. Why does Judas, uh, Jesus ask the question if, if, if he already knows? Well, because the question is not actually for Jesus to know the answer to. The question is for Judas. Now, a kiss was not uncommon in the first century as a greeting. It's likely that, that Jesus and his disciples, they greeted each other often, regularly in this way. It was a sign of affection. It was a sign of genuine friendship that the kiss is not out of place. It's the reason for the kiss that's so deeply disturbing. It's a kiss of betrayal. It's the kiss of death. It's a kiss in a very literal sense. We'll see this in a few moments from hell. It's a kiss from hell. I want you to picture this scene in your mind. I want you to go there just for a minute. Judas did not go to the religious authorities and tell them where Jesus would be that night so that they could go get him. And Judas didn't go to the Roman authorities and, and, and make a description of Jesus so that they could identify him when they found him. And Judas was not in the garden standing behind a tree pointing Jesus out, kind of ashamed of his action. No, no Judas walked into the garden, walked straight up, crowd behind him, big group behind him, walked straight up to the place where Jesus had been kneeling on the ground praying. Walked past 11 of the men that he'd spent the last three years with. He walked up, he looked Jesus face to face. He looked him right in the eye. He could smell his breath. He could see the sweat on his brow. And there in that moment when and Jesus knew what he had come to do, and Judas knew that Jesus knew what he had come to do, he still kissed him. I love the way that the Greek describes this kiss. The Greek verb to kiss is the same as to love. It's phileo. Uh, Judas is making a mockery of Jesus' love. He kisses him. And he stabs him in the back. It's sick. It's heinous. Kent Hughes says this, this image of betrayal is one of the most powerful to ever grip the human imagination. And I agree. Well, what does Jesus do when Judas approaches? He allows him to do what he came to do. And in the midst of it, he asks him a question. And this isn't obvious at first reading, uh, uh, first reading, and in fact, it's not easy to see in our English translation anyway, but this is a weighty question. It's a very personal question. We've already said that Jesus knows why Judas came, so he's not looking to Judas to answer. No, he's, he's making an appeal to Judas. He's inviting Judas to consider his actions. It's like, Judas, wake up. Do you know what you're doing here? Are you so dead, so beyond feeling that you would betray me with a kiss? It's an appeal to Judas to consider his sin. And it's the same appeal that Jesus always makes to sinners. It's an appeal for repentance. Now listen to what Alexander McLaren says. Thus to the end, Christ seeks to keep him, keep Judas from ruin. And with meek patience, on behalf of Christ, he resents not indignity done to him, but with majestic calmness sets before the miserable man the hideousness of his act. Despite his betrayal, despite his duplicity, 
despite his hypocrisy, Jesus engages Judas. And it's in his question that we get the rest of the story. Judas, you of all people know why I came. I came to shine light on those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of sin. And in this moment, that is clearly you. So here's your chance to repent, to own it, to return to me. I'm going to the cross no matter what. I'm going there to die. Judas, you don't have to. Unfortunately, Judas doesn't take Jesus up on his offer. But the offer still stands for you and me. And so I'll just make you the offer the same way that Jesus makes it to Judas. And maybe you're sitting in that chair right now and, and you, you know it. You made a mockery of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Mockery of your relationship with God. Maybe you're caught right, right now red-handed in sin. Maybe the person next to you doesn't know it. I, I certainly don't know it, but you know it. And Jesus Christ knows it. Same offer to you. A question that couples his knowing it with an appeal for repentance. Why? Because he cares about you. Cares about your heart far more than he does your actions. He cares about you just like he would the ultimate betrayer. And he invites you to consider repentance. Owning it and returning to him. The offer, it stands. Well, Jesus asked a question. It's the first thing that he says. And then he makes a statement. The statement's about the ear. See, this question for Judas is just hanging in the air. And the disciples are getting a bit uncomfortable with the question, with the scene. And so they get involved in the action. And they're waking up now. They're beginning to see what's happening. This crowd has come for Jesus. And so they say, Lord, shall we strike with the sword before Jesus has time to answer the deed is done? We know from the Gospel of John that it's Peter who takes the sword out. It's Peter who lashes out at the slave of the high priest. It's Peter who misses the slave, fortunately, and nips off an ear. Jesus says, stop. No more of this. He touches the man's ear and he heals him. Now, this is getting wild, isn't it? Just consider this part of the scene for a moment. I want you to just go there for a minute. It, it, this, Matthew tells us that the crowd, this crowd, we'll see who all is in the crowd in a minute, but this crowd, it's big, it's very large. And they've come with torches because they expect Jesus to be hiding. They've come with weapons because they expect a fight. They get a fight from Peter. Peter takes the sword out. He rips at the slave of the high priest. I want you to know the slave of the high priest is not just anybody. It's the top cabinet official of the high priest of the 70-person Sanhedrin. This is about as high as it goes in terms of religious authority. You can imagine in this moment how many swords are in the air pointed right at Peter. Jesus opens his mouth, orders a ceasefire, and everybody obeys immediately. Now, you, you tracking with this? The, the criminal, they've come to arrest. He says, stop, and everyone stops. You tell me who's in control. See, Jesus then rebukes Peter and the disciples. Why? Because Peter's trying to take control. Jesus is not going to let that happen. 
Jesus trusted in the will of the Father. Peter did not. Peter was trying to take matters into his own hands. So John tells us, John 18, 11, that Jesus says to Peter, put the sword away. The cup the Father has given me, I'm going to drink it. That's the rest of the story. Jesus is in control. Jesus sets his own arrest back on course. Do you see that? He's in control. He's walking toward and accomplishing the purposes of the Father. And he's willing to suffer unjustly in order to do it. Now, interesting note here, the healing was important for another reason. The, the crowd was about to spend all night looking for some legal basis to bring charges against Jesus. If the ear still is laying on the ground, then there's a charge against Jesus and his men. Jesus heals the man so that no charges can be brought against him. So they'd be innocent in the eyes of the law. In fact, he argues just a little bit later with Pilate that, that my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, I would let my disciples fight. We don't fight. I came to heal and to save, not to fight for a kingdom in the physical world. Now, one more comment here in this section just by way of application. Have you noticed how composed Jesus is? How calm he is, unshaken, seems prepared for the moment. Have you noticed how not composed the disciples are? Have you noticed this? Out of control, one minute they're sleeping, the next they're wielding swords. They say kill when Jesus says heal. They're, they're totally unprepared for the moment. Well, I would just suggest that there's a reason for that. I want us to go back just for a minute to verse 41, 42, and 43, and we'll, we'll see this reason for that. And Jesus is in the garden. He's withdrawn from the disciples to pray. He kneels down. He begins to pray saying, verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Uh, you may remember Lloyd talked about this back in November. He said that the word strengthening there is not just like inspired, go be strong. No, it literally is infusing strength within. It's putting strength in. It's, it's an internal strengthening by God that only comes from prayer. And when Jesus gets up, he's ready. He's prepared for the trial that is at hand. The disciples, not so much. Why? Because they haven't been praying. Here's the point for you and me. In our lives, prayer is the same. It's not just for the trial to be taken away. Okay to pray for that. Jesus prayed for that. But it's not just for that. It is also preparation, strengthening to endure the trials that are coming. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you can just expect it. Opposition, suffering, injustice, it will come. If it's not already here, it's coming. And sometimes God's plan is accomplished through the trial not around it. Sometimes there's not any other way. And so we prepare, not just for the way out, but for the strength to go through, okay? The last statement Jesus makes is about the hour. Here he is speaking to the crowd. In verse 52, we pick up Jesus' words. Just look there with me for a moment. 
Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come against him, have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? I was with you daily in the temple. You did not lay hands on me, but defining statement, this hour in the power of darkness are yours. A couple of quick comments before we look at the statement. I want you to notice that the crowd here is made up of religious, political, and military leadership. Chief priests are the scribes and the Pharisees, the elders in the community. Those are the lay members of the Sanhedrin, the court I mentioned just a moment ago. The captains are the captains of the temple police. And John tells us that there's a Roman cohort there, a a group of Roman soldiers who are there as well. Everybody in authority is represented in the garden. That's the first thing that we notice. Second thing we notice is that the crowd treats Jesus like a criminal. Torches define him in hiding, the weapons that they might have a fight that he, he would expect he would fight back. Jesus calls them on it. You're, you're treating me like a common criminal, like a robber, like a, like a bandit. I, I've been in your temple every morning this week and all day. You could have engaged me there. You see, the irony here is that Jesus is not the lawbreaker. They are the lawbreakers. They've come in the secret of the night outside the realm of justice, without charges to bear. Now we know now that this takes place to fulfill the prophecy back in Isaiah 53. That Jesus actually just quoted in the upper room over the Passover meal to his disciples just a couple hours before where he says this, that which is written, Isaiah 53, will be fulfilled in me. I will be numbered with the outlaws. I'll be numbered with the transgressors. And here is where he is. Now it's this last phrase in verse 53 that is, as I mentioned, the defining statement. It's the statement that tells the rest of the story. The statement that tells God's greater story. Jesus looks at the crowd and he gives them permission to do what they've come to do. The hour and the power of darkness are yours. This is the place in the text where we can't escape the heaviness, the weightiness. The darkness that covers this text is most obvious right here. Why? Because the power of darkness is the power and the authority of Satan himself. There's lots of ways that we know this is true. Earlier in the chapter, the chief priests and the scribes were trying to figure out how they might put Jesus to death because they were afraid of the people. And the text says in verse 3 that Satan entered into Judas, that he then went to the chief priests and scribes to give them the way, offer to betray Jesus Christ. You see, Satan was at work in Judas. Satan was at work through the chief priests and scribes. In Ephesians 6 and in Colossians 1, we see the same language. When the darkness reigns, it's used in the exact same way to describe the power and authority of Satan. In Luke 4, 13, Satan, after testing Jesus in the wilderness, he left him for a more opportune time. The moment of his death is that opportune time. This was it. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. 
Adam and Eve, they, they sin in the garden. They, they choose independence. They choose to believe that there is a better way. They sin first time in the garden in chapter 3. What does God say to them? He says this, because of your sin, and of course ours, Satan will be permitted to do his worst in this world. What is Satan's worst? It is, still Genesis 3, to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. Who is the seed of the woman? Jesus Christ. Stop for just a minute. Bill, are you saying that it's God who permits Satan to do evil in this world? Yes, I am. You see, he allows it, he permits it when it serves to accomplish his greater purpose. Please hear me on this. God is not evil ever. God is only and always good. Yet, here's a theological term, divine providence means that he is sovereign over all things. He governs and reigns supreme over all things, including an indirect permissive kind of relationship with evil that will allow evil in a limited capacity, those cooperating with Satan, even Satan himself, to demonstrate his power and authority in this world when it serves to accomplish the greater purpose and plan. So, God allows Satan to bruise the heel of Jesus, to be arrested, to be tried, to be ultimately killed because Jesus does what? Jesus will do what? Genesis 3, here it is. He will crush the darkness. He will crush Satan's head. How? By dying. By paying the penalty of death for God's wrath for all of our sin, yours and mine. The death that is owed is paid. It's swallowed up in the cross. So get this. The power and the hour of the darkness is at the same time the power and the hour of Jesus Christ's salvation for all. Do you see that? It's unbelievable that that would be true, even in evil. James Ryle writes this. The sovereignty of God over everything done on earth is absolute and complete. The hands of the wicked cannot stir one moment before God allows them to start and cannot continue one moment after God has commanded them to stop. Our Lord's enemies could not take and kill him until the appointed hour had come. The cross accomplishes the exact opposite of what the darkness wishes. Why? Because Jesus Christ is in control. So what? I want to ask you this question. I want you to think about it for a moment. Where do you find yourself in the story? Which character do you most identify with? Here's another way to ask it. When life's circumstances, suffering stuff, injustice, whatever starts pressing in around you, who are you most like? Are you like Judas? It's like when stuff starts pressing in, it's just easy for you to turn on what you say you believe. Maybe it's obvious like Judas' betrayal. Maybe it's not quite so obvious. It's more subtle. You, you work hard to disguise your sin. Maybe that's what's true about you. It's like your, your gestures of affection toward God 
they just lack authenticity. They're not authentic. Maybe that's where you are this morning. You like Judas. Or, or maybe you're like Peter. P Peter, just unprepared for the circumstances, for the trial that came. So because you're unprepared, you, you react. Maybe you panic. Maybe you lash out. Maybe you just try to take control. But you're surprised by the circumstances. You're not prepared for them. And so you're more like Peter when push comes to shove. Or maybe you're like the crowd. You know, fear is the motivation of the crowd. Earlier in Luke 22, it says chief priests and scribes, they looking for a place in secret to find Jesus and take him to try him. And because they were afraid, afraid of the people. Maybe you're afraid of what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ. Afraid of suffering or the cost. Maybe you're afraid of what people will really think. Some people will really think if you really and truly sell out for Jesus Christ. Maybe it's that fear that paralyzes you in some way. Or maybe it's that fear that, that makes you just want to step over with the larger crowd that are standing against them as opposed to standing over here by yourself for him. I'll tell you who it is for me. More often than not, I'm like, Peter, it's like, Justice, suffering, consequences, circumstances, they always surprise me. I've been around this for a while, still surprises me. So I react to it. I'm not prepared for it. I was with my, one of my daughters two nights ago and we we're having a conversation. I was so surprised by her response, her reaction that I reacted. Gosh, did it again. React. Wasn't prepared. What wasn't walking with some calmness, some confidence in Christ. I, I just wasn't prepared. So my place of repentance is simply that, to own the places where I react. A place of obedience is simply to engage different in my own prayer life. I'm exposed in my prayer life. What is it for you? Who, who do you most identify with in the garden? I want you to take a minute just to consider that and ask the Spirit of God to show you what it looks like to own it and to return to Him. Would you take a minute to answer that question? Everybody do this.